Welcome to the Not Sorry Art Podcast. I'm Sari Shrike, the artist and creator behind Not Sorry Art and Not Sorry Art School. I'm so excited to talk art and creativity with you. So grab a drink, grab a snack, and let's dive in. This episode of the Not Sorry Art Podcast is brought to you by Not Sorry Art School. Not Sorry Art School is my online art school I created two and a half years ago to supplement my workshop teaching when the pandemic hit. It became a really great resource where I could put all of my knowledge about representational painting into one space. We add one new section or demo every quarter to Not Sorry Art School and you don't have to pay a membership fee, you pay one time and then you get access to all of the past videos and all future videos. Not Sorry Art School has an online Facebook group where I have office hours every Monday and I answer questions within the Not Sorry Art School Facebook group. And there's also a wonderful sense of community on there where people will share their paintings and get great consensual feedback. I'm really excited about Not Sorry Art School. So if you're interested, make sure to click the link and check out the about page to learn more about Not Sorry Art School. Hello, and welcome back to the Not Sorry Art Podcast. I'm Sari, thanks for being here. Today's episode is about style, although I feel like (laughs) when I pitched this idea for this episode to my, my partner, Um, he pointed out he was like didn't you already do an episode on style and I feel like style is one of those things that I could probably make a 10-part series about because style in essence is just another way of talking about ourselves and so you know obviously we could talk about ourselves and our own intricacies at length or at least I could (laughs) it's probably why I'm sitting in front of a microphone right now the kind of person who would start a podcast is probably the kind of person who could talk about style endlessly but I'm interested in style of course personally as an artist but also as a teacher because I feel like it's one of the harder things to talk about for some students and yet for other students you never have to have the style conversation. And I think that that makes it a really interesting topic. I will just get to the point. Today's sort of paradigm of which we are going to look at finding style, selecting style, how how we find style is about being a consumer versus being a producer. Now this is a conversation that was first posed to me back in undergrad. My college painting professor, he went to school of visual arts in New York. And one of the things about the way he taught painting was once you got past the first several semesters learning sort of the foundations is that we had these conversations around um you know why painting and why make why make paintings in the year what would it have been 2013 you know 2012 and along with that is how do we find style and one of the ways he sort of positioned this to us is the only way likely most of us understand how to pick a style before we actually sort of show up in our studios dirty our hands and actually paint or what other whatever other medium we choose is as a consumer because in a lot of ways our first real creative act and I'm using that term kind of generously here is as a consumer and so I want to dive into this idea a little bit because not only is it something I learned early you know, relatively early in my my art career, but also because as someone who makes art about consumerism and who is very interested in things like aesthetics and how kind of pertinent it is to right now and conversations have being had online right now, um, I thought I could offer a little bit of insight into this. This is something I think about a lot with real intentionality and I want to share what I know with you guys, but most importantly, I'm hoping that you walk away from this episode 
also thinking about some of these things, but I think more importantly, understanding how messy and how different a style is going to feel, especially if your main mode of creativity your whole life has been through the lens of a consumer. And I think that this can be helpful. It sounds kind of heady, but it really isn't. It's just, we're going to explore a couple of ideas. And so if that sounds interesting to you, then please stay tuned. I'm really excited for this episode and I know you guys are going to love it. So recently I listened to a video essay on YouTube. One of my favorite things to do as a little aside here is to watch video essays on YouTube. I started watching, I believe it was Nerd Writer. He made videos about art and art history. And of course I loved that. And it sort of was my uh, foyer into video essays and now I'm hooked. I mean, once you watch a ContraPoints video, I feel like you can't go back. But one of my favorite video essayists right now on YouTube is someone by the name of Shanspeare. And their work is amazing. If you like pop culture and sort of philosophy and literature, run don't walk <laughs> to her um her youtube channel because it's fantastic and a, an episode that came out in the last year or so was an episode called social media's obsession with aesthetics and curated identities this episode is a little bit inspired by listening to that i remember watching it when it came out and then i recently rewatched it because of something i'm doing with my own personal art projects In this video essay, Shanspeare starts out basically going through a list of all the different kind of aesthetics. So core core, dark academia, cottage core, some of those might come to mind. And let me just say, even if you kind of don't know what I'm talking about here, (laughs) if you don't live on TikTok and Pinterest, first, oh my God, bless you. Second, you probably actually do. You you just may not know like the, the, the verbiage around it, but it's this idea that we have these sort of curated identities. And I will start by saying that while the language around this is relatively new in the last 10, maybe 15 years, this idea isn't new, right? I am (laughs) getting to be an older-ish person. And I remember prior to the internet being the juggernaut it is now, certainly, being a teenage girl and scouring 17 magazines and Teen Vogue's and all kinds of different books and magazines looking for kind of a new personality to inhabit now I feel like I'm assuming here but I feel like that is a typical teenage adolescent thing to sort of do is try on these identities but again maybe that's more to me personally not having much of an identity to begin with who knows anyways all that to say is I do remember this idea that one day I would decide to dye my hair like cherry cola red and be more vampy and that was my identity for a few months and then the next month I would kind of downplay my makeup and wear more basic clothes and I would be a little more sporty and that would be my identity for a few months maybe half a year rinse and repeat until I reached a point in my life that I was a lot more confident with my aesthetic choices. Complete side note here this is another reason why whenever we think of like women not being great artists I get infuriated a little bit because 
truthfully, uh, I feel like women, maybe it's a more modern thing. I, I don't think so, but have always sort of had a creative practice and that creative practice was sort of self-identity. This ability to understand that you were engaging in these creative tasks for yourself and at the same time through the male gaze, which is a whole other can of worms, but through the idea that you are being watched through the lens of our culture, understanding that a choice can be both personal and also outward facing at the same time. We learned this in college in like our conceptual art classes, but to me, it, they just had to say like the definition of this kind of thing once and I was like oh yeah like picking a style you know that all of these little choices I had made from these thrifted clothes and different jewelry and makeup choices all sort of created an archetype for the kind of girl I was in an effort to sort of portray to the outside world the complexity that I felt on the inside and yet wasn't afforded by my own natural state of personhood okay I'll get back on track but the idea that you sort of flip through looks and identities and maybe even archetypes to some point um, is not new. I feel like it's the language around it and then the fact that you have apps like Pinterest and Instagram and maybe if you remember Polyvore, <laughs> an older app, this will all seem familiar but it's the idea that you can see someone on social media whether it's a Pinterest sort of avatar or an actual real life influencer and sort of ask what their aesthetic is and maybe they'll give you a blend of a couple but you can sort of have a couple of these words you can put them into search engines and then you can find the products the clothes even if you thrift them even if you don't buy them from Shein and you can assume that sort of identity. So basically picking out your sort of personal identity hesitate to use words like personal brand but you know as a as a young female I remember feeling like picking out who I was and how the world was going to see me already went from a mostly sort of consumerist task that is for me it was I had a couple of snippets of older 17 magazines that I had clipped out and I would go to thrift stores and sort of emulate to the best of my ability those outfits, those silhouettes, those structures and then pair them with certain makeup and hair choices and ways of speaking and holding myself and all those little things um, to sort of create this look and this aesthetic and this feel within myself but with sort of the internet and with this real increased sort of set of, of words now it's become an incredibly sort of consumerist driven activity now getting back to college I remember when my painting professor sort of explained this idea of people pick their style in this consumerist model versus a producer model he sort of gave us the example of newer artists or maybe artists who don't have a grasp on style sort of metaphorically flip through a catalog find a couple of styles they like and sort of just Frankenstein them together and make a style and I will say giving a moment here certainly that can be a way to find style but you're really pushing aside what I believe is kind of the meat of being an artist so I'm never speaking in absolutes you know for the most part in general in my whole life but <laughs> in the sense of style I'm not speaking in absolutes there's always exceptions to everything but that being said the idea is that that's not generally how it works that's how, someone who hasn't been in the weeds making creative choices maybe thinks that's how it is but in actuality there's a lot more of, of ourselves that sort of get interjected into that process and I think a lot of the best creative choices and stylistic choices come out of 
being a producer. So that brings us to, okay, well, what's the difference? You've laid out all this models, these models of um, consumer, you know, creating through sort of this consumerist lens or model, like what is the alternative? The alternative is not that you don't have these external products or finished artists or finished pieces of work or finished ideas and theses that you can pull from. It's more that those operate as sort of footnotes and guideposts. You know, one thing, one experience that I have had is that there's been an artist or a style that I absolutely love. I adore it. But when I go to embody that work or, you know, AKA try to mimic that work in some capacity in my own sort of style, um, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't, I, I like to look at it, but I don't necessarily enjoy creating like that. And I think that is kind of, I would think, lesson one when you are learning the differences between finding style through a consumerist model versus finding style through a production model. But truly what's happening is it's more of, I've made this episode, I've made an episode around this and I so I'll be brief here, but it's more of how I sort of describe it as the style sandwich, which is you do have things like your big style influences sort of in the middle um, along with other influences and maybe who you learn to paint from and the time period you are born into and are influenced by and other forms of media that you consume are all kind of in the middle of your sandwich, right? Your lettuce, your um, meat, your cheese, your condiments. But then I would say the thing that makes a sandwich a sandwich and not a pile of random crap (laughs) is your top bun and your bottom bun. And I describe those as our strengths and our weaknesses. And I have their strengths on top because they're usually the things that we sort of like and lean into. For me, it is always going to be things like color choices and to some degree composition. And then we have our weaknesses. And for me, that's going to be things like drawing and to some degree sort of value and some other things that, you know, that maybe at this point they're not necessarily weaknesses, but things that don't come as easily, but I cannot completely pull out of my painting style, right? I can't not draw. I mean, I guess I could do abstract art, but I choose to do realism but anyways the point of that analogy is that all of those things together all in one bite are going to give you your style sandwich and it's going to give the impression of who you are and how unique you are as a person no matter how similar people's ingredients are everyone is really unique and is going to have a different to continue with the metaphor you know flavor profile and the importance of that metaphor is because I have always wanted to find a way without it sounding like a Barney episode, to sort of let people know that your weaknesses, and I'm using those kind of in air quotes because like to one man's weakness is another man's strength, right? We think of Alice Neal and I think she's a good example of an artist who, if a student maybe who didn't know who Alice Neal was, who was wanting to make perfect portraits, um, you know, perfectly representational portraits, had a painting that looked like Alice Neal. Maybe you would like it, maybe it wouldn't be so bad, but you might have that quiet voice inside of you that says, well, that's not perfect drawing. It's kind of your proportions are off. But because we're looking at it as Alice Neal, as the critically acclaimed amazing portrait artist that she is, we see those wonkinesses and all those, those, those quote, shortcomings as an asset to her style. It's what makes her who? Her. <laughs> It's what makes her her and all of those things sort of melded together are wonderful and they're Alice Neal and yet I feel like if that was us making that and that we didn't have the sort of backing of someone saying no this those weaknesses the drawing wonkiness is actually part of the style then we 
tend to want to run from that or maybe we don't tackle portraits because our drawing is really bad or we work really hard to try to perfect our drawing and what we might be doing is erasing a part of ourselves that gives us a very distinct again going back to the metaphor flavor profile style and we know that we need to sort of lean into that but the reason I wanted to dedicate a whole episode to this subject this idea of creating your style through the lens of sort of this consumer model versus a producer's model is because I wanted to go into a little bit more detail of what that production looks like. Now, if you are an artist, a robust artist with a practice, maybe you don't need to hear this. I totally get that. But I do think it's important for other creatives who maybe don't have a studio practice and instead of their studio being this physical place, an easel, a palette, there's scraps of paint on the floor. There's lots of half-finished paintings everywhere that are in various levels of completion and abandon. And, you know, instead of having that sort of physical, tangible proof of studio practice, maybe this is happening inside their head. You know, if you're a writer, if you're sort of, you know, you write about culture or um, you are someone who maybe works, you know, your taste is a part of your your profession or your practice or something, but you don't have sort of the physical indicators of swings and misses and labor and all of those things, I think it's important to mention that the producer model as opposed to the consumer model is messy, incredibly messy and full of swings and misses. Now, everyone's rate at swings and misses is going to be different. You know, some people for every 10 paintings they make that are just like, awful they get one good one and you know for other people maybe they can hold down (laughs) hold the line a little bit better and for every five good they have one bad that's just everyone's different so there's no right or wrong here but I think it's important to note that with sort of a producer model you have lots of swings and misses okay so so I wanted to bring this up and my point here is I'm gonna go back to my disco ball series I feel like I bring this up kind of a lot and I I would don't want to like lament it. I promise you like this is something I've worked through, but it's a really good, really clear and obvious example of this. So the idea with the disco balls is I had a bunch of series of work that were integral in me coming up with that sort of optical illusion tiled mirror ball that's like using these really abstract colors you know I'm not painting individual sort of mirrored images on those little tiles but just making one solid color choice and really colorful ones you know sort of the things that are unique about it were all informed by bodies of work that came prior so One of those was I did this sort of vaporwave themed mall series. (laughs) Oops, like I think I did like 25 of them. Not a single one of them sold. And it was during a time when I was very much on a shoestring budget. So my little like studies of fruit and stuff were really propping that whole body of work up because they were large too. But they were full of these big tiled floors and I ended up painting so many rooms that were this, you know, this great 90s mixture of carpet and tile that I had developed kind of a knack for painting these and I had developed a really good sense of shorthand in those. And as I painted them, I remember thinking, oh, this is a really fun thing. I love how when the light shifts, because malls have these big like skylights and they have mixtures of like artificial light and it would cast all these different values and colors on the tile and I absolutely loved it I'll include a couple 
in my show notes so you can kind of look at what I'm talking about. But I remember loving that. That's a whole body of work that's many, 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 maybe hundreds of hours and certainly money (laughs) lost. I mean, I was able to make posts out of them, so it wasn't too bad. And I was able to learn a lot personally and I wrote an artist statement about it. But, you know, just like all externally, very much a failure of a body of work in a lot of ways. And then I also had a separate body of work of these circle canvases that I just couldn't get to work. So one thing you learn in art school, I had kind of a a more hybrid, but a more like classical sort of education with like components of like an atelier sort of style. And uh, whenever my painting professor was talking to us about what we painted on, he always sort of said, hey, like rectangles are the best. They give you the best chance at a good composition you know, there's more to say there, but just we'll put it there. But he also sort of said that squares and circles are tremendously hard to paint on because it's hard to sort of have a good focal point. You have to be really in control of your composition, etc., etc. And I sort of naively bought a bunch, I think they, to my credit, I believe they were on sale, but I bought a bunch of circle and square square canvases and really struggled to make anything on them I did a bunch of like paintings of ducks and lakes and I was trying to make it work and I just really struggled with them I think I did a still life or two and yes that's another body of work that probably still exists in my storage locker somewhere (laughs) like floating around so I you know I I was able to learn from it and there's growth and, and purpose in every painting even the bad ones even the ones that don't sell but all that to say when I did first paint a disco ball, when it kind of all gelled together, the, the the year of me painting lots of malls and disco, you know, tiles and my love of disco music and sort of, you guys know this whole story about it being about generational trauma. There's not much from my childhood I can share with my children. 70 Saturday is one of those very few things that my kids have before said, like, you know, tell me about your childhood mom. And, you know, they're young, so I don't. But I can share with them the fact that on every Saturday there was 70s music there was disco my mom and I would go thrift shopping and listen to that on the radio at thrift shops and I loved it and it was wonderful and so I can share that with them and it was really sweet and special and it was during this one particular backyard dance session with my then toddler boy at the time that it clicked and I can't help but think that had I not taken on those other bodies of work had I not had other things sort of percolating had I not had a stack of circle canvases in my studio that were kind of collecting dust and frustrating me, that those things wouldn't have been on my mind or my subconscious at least and wouldn't have given me a body of work that ended up being pretty successful. And I'm bringing this up because, again, it's a good example of sort of what the production model of of making something looks like, right? I didn't go and look through a catalog and say disco ball and then flip to someone who was rounding down their representational realism to just like one color choice or you know whatever and I didn't go find someone who would painted in these really saccharine colors for years at that point um, and then sort of hot you know clip them out hodgepodge them together in like some AI generator and then out comes these disco balls um, it was messiness it was swings and misses it was failures it was paintings all over the cutting room floor it was um not a smooth easily profitable streamlined devoid of mistake process like sometimes consuming can be where it's already polished it's already finished somebody already put that labor in and you sort of pick and choose it's messier and I also bring it up because 
the disco balls have had a life of their own and like it has been a wild ride I've so enjoyed it and I've so felt you know really privileged and it's been amazing but the reach of them have meant that they have lived on a lot of Pinterest boards (laughs) and they have lived a long life on explore pages initially through my own series and now through you know a lot of other series and as wild as it is you know I can't help but think that's somewhere out there and everyone's on their own journey please I'm not condemning I'm just sort of showing difference but somebody who maybe needed their bills paid and I understand this tendency it's a very human one probably explored you know went on an explore page or a Pinterest page and saw a finished product with success already attached to it and maybe were a mix of inspired, you know, which is a very wonderful emotion and thing to feel and very pure and very honest and amazing with that little bit of sort of a consumerist mindset in style and this idea that like it is successful, it's proven and I like it. And sometimes we can conflate the fact that we like something to picking out style. And I think that's kind of the point of this episode. And I'm not making this episode to sort of condemn anyone who sort of does it that way. Again, everyone's on their own journey. This is more of a bit of insight into that that model sort of going around all the bodies of work that are lay carnage on the build up to a very successful body of work and sort of saying, I don't have the time, resources, money, energy, bravery, courage to risk going somewhere on my own and trying and swinging and missing. So instead... And maybe they don't know. And granted, I learned all this in art school and that's a privilege. So again, it's not a condemnation thing here. But, you know, you sort of bypass all those things. You know, maybe you identify as being a painter, as an artist. And instead of sort of having your own messy studios and swings and misses that gets you to something that's very uniquely you, you say, I need this to be profitable. I need this as a part of my identity and I like it. And we sort of conflate that liking to the creative process. And this kind of brings me to my final point of the episode, which is that our taste, our liking is a part of the creative process. And it's also why, and I have a theory that I've had on the back burner for a long time and it is 100% just a theory, but that people who tend to have problems with compulsively spending are actually incredibly creative people my theory on this is both with a little bit of my own life (laughs) not that I've had some kind of compulsive spending problems but I have noticed that during the times where I'm not creating that that becomes my vice (laughs) not that I always I haven't been able to enact on it but I've never had a more full Pinterest board and list of things I've wanted to buy and the achy feeling of wanting to purchase something more than when I have been not in in a very abundant creative practice and then also I come from a long line of very creative people I think most people are creative but you know I've had a couple of family members that are just like everything they touch becomes creative in some capacity and my grandma my maternal grandmother was a notoriously one of those people who couldn't go into a store without getting something even if it was nothing they needed you know and it was you know you know she was a southern kind of 
lower class lady so it was never anything crazy but you know she was a spender 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 and she bought the best gifts for everyone and she was you know I'm sure she has like a Taurus moon or something like she was just a you know gifts person for herself and for others and you could tell that there was a lot of thought that went into these consumer choices she would get ramble on basically what to me felt like a bit of an artist statement (laughs) maybe I'm being generous there Um, about everything she bought everyone and why they would like it and where they could use it and it was really sweet and you know albeit a little detrimental to their finances at the end of life but but it it anyways that's my theory I think that thing inside of us that creative urge that gives us that sort of discerning voice that inner critic that that liking and not liking and taste and preferences and whatever kind of mechanism that is right I don't know It's just something inside of us. I think that that is a supremely creative force. But I think when we don't pair that with freedom and an understanding that messes are part of the creative process, and in fact, it's an imperative part of the creative process, um, we can end up in a very consumerist mindset when it comes to our creativity. And I just want to encourage you and say that It's messier, it's harder, it's full of a lot more L's, but it is tremendously more rewarding. And it's the only way to yield something, I believe, unique. Not that unique is the end goal. Again, I've made other episodes about this. I think I have an episode called like uh, Copying versus Inspiration Part 2, which goes into that if you're interested. But not that creative, you know, uniqueness specifically is the end goal. But creativity is the goal. And if you're going to spend the time and effort and resources into a creative practice, You owe it to yourself, I believe, to try forging something that's never been forged before because you don't want to leave. You know, if you put all that energy into making art, you don't want to (laughs) leave not having tried your best attempt at it. And if you are a brand new painter, if you're a brand new creative and you're just starting and you're now kind of worried that you can't, no, you can do master studies. You can certainly copy, especially in the beginning. That's totally fine. But what I'm saying is that when you get your footing, when you know how to make a painting and you have the tools to make something from start to finish at that point even if it gives you something that isn't worthy of Instagram or TikTok or Pinterest you owe it to yourself to make the ugly art to have the process to prioritize the production model of style and exploration over the consumerist model of style and exploration because I believe the fruit and in that is incredibly rich and way better than the consumer style will ever yield you hopefully that made sense that's been on my mind for a long time maybe more than a year at this point (laughs) but I can't recommend enough the Shanspeer video on aesthetics I think it's a lovely couple companion to this episode you can listen to her videos like a podcast and I just wanted to say thank you to everyone I get a lot of people who reach out and ask about style and I would just like to say if I don't have the opportunity to get back to you I do read almost all of my dms and messages and I do think about them and they do inform what I make episodes about so if you you know have ever written me or ever write me in the future thank you I love having this conversation I love keeping it going And I want to say thank you to everyone who leaves, takes the time to leave a review, especially if you write something out. It's always really helpful. Make sure that if you leave a review, that you leave your social media handle because I will read it off on next week's episode. It's always really helpful when you guys leave reviews. I am in my first season. I'm going to wrap up my season at the end of 
August and then I will start back January 1st because this season started January 1st and we're already like into June. It's so crazy, but it's really helpful. It helps me get some traction, helps me find new people. And always thank you for everyone who shares this episode on social media. I hope it was helpful. Always feel free to reach out to me and let me know what you think, whether that's through email or Instagram DM. I wanted to say thank you again. I hope you have a great rest of your day getting messy and whatever your creative process looks like. Happy creating. Wish you the best. Thanks, y'all.